This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. We're hearing from the two men who want to be the next mayor of Colorado Springs. Yesterday, it was political newcomer Yemi Mobilade. Today, it's political veteran Wayne Williams, a former city councilman and former secretary of state. He points to his record as an elected leader as one reason that voters should choose him. He spoke with KRCC's Andrea Chelfin. Wayne Williams, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. So why is it that you want to be mayor? I want to be mayor because I want to continue the progress this great city has made over the last eight years and the last four years that I served on city council. Uh, I enjoy making a difference in the community that Holly and I have called home for more than 30 years. Uh, I want this to be the kind of place that we want to continue to, to live in and and the kind of place that will cause people to make the same decision we did, which is this is the place. This is where we want to live. This is where we want to raise a family. This is where we want to recreate. This is where we want to be a part of the community. You've been in politics a long time, having been on city council previously, secretary of state, El Paso County clerk, and so on. What do you consider your proudest achievement as an elected official? I think the proudest achievement uh, is the creation of the Pikes Peak Rural Transportation Authority, Pikes Peak RTA. And I say that because it required bringing leaders together from different jurisdictions. So the county, uh, the city of Colorado Springs, at that point it was Green Mountain Falls and Manitou, and balancing the different needs and desires and coming up with a workable solution to address what at that time was our most pressing issue, which is our transportation needs. And the reason I view that as one of my proudest accomplishments is that other jurisdictions have tried that and they couldn't make it work. And so being able to bring those diverse people together uh, to address a critical need for our community. And part of our goal was to make sure we actually delivered on the promises made. And one of the exciting things is to see the people of this community say, yes, you have actually delivered on these promises. We give you the list of projects. It's a horrendously long ballot question, but I like that specificity. Tell people what you're going to do, and then when you renew it, do exactly what we've been able to do, which is say promises made, promises kept. Mm -hmm. And what about something that you regret or that you view as a mistake or maybe wished you handled differently? I regret that we haven't always been able to make everybody happy. And I try, but I don't always succeed. And sometimes the interests are so strong that you're not able to make everyone happy, the, the landowner and the neighbor. It's sometimes hard to balance those. And we try. Um, and I've had folks that have been unhappy with some of the decisions we've made. And in some cases, those were folks that have been real strong supporters of the campaign. Uh, I remember one of those uh, projected land use we turned down and I called the person afterwards. My signs had been on his property. He had donated to the campaign and said, hey, I am happy to answer any questions you've got. And he said, Wayne, if that's what you thought is the right decision, I don't have any questions. And our signs have been on that property since as well. But not everyone is always as understanding when you make a decision that you believe is in the best interest of the community. And it's hard to make those balances work. Now, we sent surveys out to all the candidates for the general election, and uh, you identified public safety as the number one challenge facing the next mayor of Colorado Springs. How are we doing? 
We're doing well. Crime is down by 9%, according to the Common Sense Institute, but there are some areas in which we're struggling. And, and there are a number of factors in that. One of those is as we've had a shift in the respect for law enforcement and the desirability of law enforcement as a career, uh, that has caused us to have some recruitment and retention issues. Uh, we've addressed those, though, in, a, in what I think are some important ways. Uh, one of those is moving to a year-round academy. So we're no longer saying, hey, we'd like you to be a police officer. Please come back in four months when the academy starts. In this economy, people aren't waiting around for four months to find a job. Also trying to make sure that we provide the training for our personnel that they need. Uh, Governor Polis appointed me to the Peace Officer Standard Training Board. So it's not just as a local level, but also at a statewide level that I'm involved in trying to make sure that we use the tools that are available now, more of interactive training as opposed to just book learning. And I think that's important as we go forward. We've added 62 new police positions, uh, 66 new firefighters, three new fire stations. One of the ways we did that is to establish a new f uh, funding mechanism and a new fee on developers that specifically addresses these public safety needs. And so there's, again, there were supporters of mine uh, in some cases that weren't necessarily very excited about the fact that we imposed a new fee on them, but it was necessary for the good of our community. And that's one of the things I'm always going to put first is the good of our community. So let's talk about ambulance services, too. That's public safety as well. Uh, response times are reportedly up. What was your plan to deal with those with the growing strain on our emergency system and the response times and getting those to a more reasonable level? So we've got uh, a number of different aspects of this. So with respect to police and fire, one of the ways is a more effective triage. So we're sending the right resources. Uh, if someone has fallen down, we, they don't need a hook and ladder truck. We've also worked, you know, if you, if you watch some of the shows, you see people calling the hospital and saying, hey, here's what's coming in, you know, let us describe that. We're not doing that anymore. We're actually inputting the data electronically so that it goes into the hospital system, goes into the emergency room system. So there's not that risk of that miscommunication. In terms of ambulance service, that's something that is done through a competitive bid. We do not have a city-run ambulance. We have private entities. Uh, we have looked at the possibility of possibly bringing that within the fire department. That would require some changes and ultimately probably a ballot issue to make that work, something that I'm committed to looking at going forward because we have to make sure we provide the best service for our community. In response to the surveys that we sent out, you said you support the current setup of the Law Enforcement Transparency and Advisory Commission. We've heard from some members of city council, former members of LETAC, community advocates who say the commission is essentially ineffective. How do you see the commission's work and ensure that what they do is heard and valued? So LETAC, or the Law Enforcement Transparency Ac Accountability Commission, has played a significant role in changing the city budget. One of those was with the unanimous recommendation out of LETAC that said we should increase alternative response teams. In other words, it's not always necessary to have police officers respond in full gear. It may be appropriate in certain circumstances where you're dealing with a mental health issue or something else to send an alternative response team. 
LEETAC proposed some recommendations. I think we spent about half a million dollars to address those recommendations in the budget, and we've continued to include that in every subsequent budget since that recommendation. With respect to looking at our use of force, they've been very involved in that process. I would also say that having LEETAC there has provided some incentives for the police department to do some things in some different ways. One of the things that I would do as mayor, and I'm committed to this, is to make sure that we are proactive in terms of having the police department provide information and seek input on some things. Ultimately, I do believe it needs to be an advisory commission. I don't favor the position of those who say we should make them in charge or some other group that's not accountable to the people in charge. The mayor under our strong mayor form of government is in charge of the police department and has that responsibility and is directly accountable to the voters. I think that's a much better method than an unelected body that is not accountable to anyone making those decisions. Having said that, I believe that LEETAC plays a vital role. I helped create it. I was one of the instigators of making it happen. Uh, And I believe that having that balance is important. So that dialogue included a couple of the leaders of the Black Lives Matters protest here in Colorado Springs. It included our retired former police chief who was our first Hispanic police chief. Uh, Lou Velez. It included the widow of a slain sheriff's deputy. By bringing people together from across the community, you're able to have that dialogue and have those recommendations actually mean something. You know, keeping on this theme of public safety, there has been some concern by residents, particularly on the west side of the city, about public safety as it pertains to evacuation planning. Some have criticized the new system for notifying residents of emergencies as inadequate. What needs to happen to help keep people safe and be able to evacuate in a timely manner? There are a number of things that we've done on city council to address the concerns about fire evacuation. One of those is we adopted the first ever fire evacuation ordinance. There are a wide variety of inputs into that process and making sure that we have the ability to micro-target is important. So having the zones so that the the fire chief is able to give directions, hey, this group needs to prepare, this group needs to evacuate, and to do it with more specificity. It's also making sure that we have additional evacuation roads. Uh, We're also working on the traffic uh, side for making sure that we can address potential bottlenecks and being able to model those is an important part of it. Of course, one of the things that we have to do is try to minimize the possibility of fire. And so one of the ballot issues that we brought to the people is to say, will you help us create a fund that will specifically address fire mitigation? We've seen absolutely the key role that fire mitigation plays. By establishing this fund, not only are we able to proactively address some of these issues, but also provide a source for matching funds as the federal government begins to look at the national forests and others. So all of that helps minimize that risk. But all of those are steps that have to be taken. Uh, And I think we have made a number of strides in that area. I want to continue to do that as our next mayor. Along the same lines, I mean, why continue to develop high-density dwellings in some of our most at-risk areas, adding more people to the need for those evacuation routes, which are, some would say, already strained? 
So one of the things that we look at in that process is what is the traffic capacity? And so any major development requires that examination. One of the purchases we made with TOPS funding was the purchase of land that could be developed below the quarries. Uh, we've done the same thing with one of the purchases by Cheyenne Mountain, Fisher's Canyon purchase. So we've used TOPS funds to minimize the number of parcels that can be developed in that wildland interface area so we can do the fire mitigation that's necessary. Um, I, I know that not everyone likes it when you do that, but that's a critical thing we have to do in our community. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to give a broad question here about growth. How do you balance growth with the challenges that it brings? So I think the most important thing to do as we balance growth with those challenges is to make sure that growth pays its own way. So as a member of city council, there are a number of steps that we've taken uh, to do just that. We, as I mentioned, established a new public safety fee. We also, though, established as Colorado Springs Utilities a new water resource fee. And this is about 6000 a home that allows us to acquire the water that's necessary. Uh, we've begun that process in working cooperatively with our friends in the Arkansas Valley. So we just signed an agreement with Bent County, uh, which is in the lower Arkansas Valley, that allows us to acquire 15,000 acre feet. 15,000 acre feet is enough for 100,000 people, so it's significant. Uh, we've purchased 3,000 of those already, but we're doing it in an innovative way. Instead of the buy and dry method that used to take place in Colorado and still does in other jurisdictions, we're working with the farmers to upgrade their irrigation system and then buying the water that's saved. That keeps the land in agricultural production, still lets us enjoy the Rocky Fork cantaloupes and all the other wonderful things that we like, uh, but makes it so we're actually able to get the water we need and still support our agricultural partners in the Arkansas Valley. And, and so we've made those changes. We've also increased the cost for park uh, fees so that if you are paying fees in lieu of land dedication, you have to pay a higher rate than you used to do. All of those are ways to try to make sure that we balance that out and address those needs. Uh, as a community, I, I want us to continue to grow, but I want us to grow smartly, and I want us to grow in a way that doesn't adversely impact the existing residents. Wayne Williams is running for mayor of Colorado Springs. He's speaking with KRCC's Andrea Chalfin. When we come back, do developers have undue influence as Colorado Springs tries to figure out the best way to grow? Williams also talks attainable housing, homelessness, water, and transportation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Black Pearl. Sheila. Hermit. The Corn. Just some of the names belonging to beloved cars donated to Colorado Public Radio. And some of the reasons people gave for donating their friend. I couldn't think of a better cause for the last bits of her life. I'm sad to see him go, but glad to know he'll be of good use. It's easier to let go of your car when you donate it to Colorado Public Radio. Learn how at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. We're hearing from the two candidates for mayor of Colorado Springs. Today, it's Wayne Williams. He's speaking with KRCC's Andrea Chelfin about some of the top issues facing the state's second largest city. 
Colorado Springs has long had a reputation, for better or worse, earned or not, as being too developer friendly. And, you know, on city council, you backed the water ordinance that requires a certain amount of water be available before the city can annex more property to build on. Um, The ordinance passed on a five to four vote. But critics say that it, it basically creates a developer monopoly in favor of Norwood. People say Norwood is financially backing your campaign. Is is that true? How do you see that relationship? So first, uh, let's, let's talk about the ordinance itself. The ordinance itself is designed to ensure that we as a community have enough water for those of us who are already here. It does not uh, prohibit development, but it requires before we annex additional land that we have sufficient water for it. I think most of us, when we look at Lake Powell, Lake Mead, recognize the need particularly once you realize that 70% of the water we use in Colorado Springs when we count reuse comes out of the Colorado River. And while this year was a great snow year, that's not a strategy to hope and pray that it snows once every 20 years. Uh, So it was absolutely important that we provide a way of assessing, is there enough water? And let's look at what we had before. What we had before was a, as long as there's enough water for the foreseeable future, was the quote. Well, I don't know how I define that. And so you had a system that wasn't fair, that wasn't laid out, that wasn't specific. And by moving to a specifically defined buffer, we have provided more certainty and fairness in the process. With respect to who benefits, who doesn't, right? The first beneficiary and the most important is the existing residents of Colorado Springs who know that there is going to be enough water. So whenever they turn on that tap, water is going to be there. That is the first and and highest priority. With respect to who owns land, uh, it is true that Norwood owns a significant portion of the land. They don't own all of it, however. And generally, if you've got multiple different entities that can compete, that is not a monopoly. Plus, there is no requirement that someone live in the city of Colorado Springs. And so certainly uh, there is the opportunity for land to develop outside the city that's been done. Uh, Certainly if you talk to the people in Falcon, they view themselves as part of our community, but they don't live within the city. And so there is not a monopoly in terms of who can build a house or where a house can be built. Is there a limitation on who all comes here? Yes. It's not as developer-friendly as it used to be because of this ordinance. I supported this ordinance that is less developer-friendly. And I did that because it was the right thing to do for our community. It is true that I have support from a number of people across our community whose economic well-being is tied to a successful economy. And I'll give Colorado Springs Forward as an example of that. That happens to be the largest donor. Uh, They are a group of a couple hundred folks focused on trying to make sure we have economic progress in our community. They were a big funder for some of our TOPS initiatives, uh, for our paving initiatives for 2C. And so they've consistently looked for what initiative or what candidate is going to help move our community forward, thus the name, uh, but also who's going to help foster the economic well-being. And when you look at what's happened over the last eight years, we've gone from a 30 billion economy to a 40 billion economy. And that affects all of us and helps all of us, whether it's where we own a business or work for a business. 
it enables us to have a stronger economy. I've been here for 30 years. I've seen it when, you know, Hibbert's closed downtown, Montgomery Ward's closed, and everyone was closing. It's a lot more exciting to have Robeson Arena and Widener Field, and then you see the cranes on the skyline. Those are things we didn't used to see. I'm committed to continuing that economic vitality. That's why folks like Colorado Springs Forward are supporting me, because they know that I am the candidate who can deliver that, partially because I'm the only candidate that's actually ever had any elected executive experience. I want to go back to the water ordinance just quickly. And you addressed some of this, but there are flat-out allegations that the developers have your ear. People like Colorado Springs Forward have your ear, that you are influenced by them. I just want your response to that. It's absolutely not true. First, as I've talked about, I've imposed a host of fees uh, in the range of close to $10,000 when you add them all up on developers, and that's a per lot fee. If that allegation had any truth at all, I would never have done that. Uh, They were not happy with those discussions on public safety fees, on establishing a water resource fee. Uh, And so there's some very strong evidence that's absolutely false. I have turned down developments. Uh, I have approved them. And I look at what is the best answer at that particular time. And I don't do it with respect to whether someone's donated or not donated. And that is the absolute truth. It's the absolute record. And there's a lot of evidence to support exactly what I just said. As developments and um, shopping centers continue to be built, it's really important to pay attention to the ways people get to and from these new things, you know, as well as the existing areas. And and I am curious about 2C, which is a voter-approved tax for the roads, PPRTA, we've talked about. Is that enough for the infrastructure, the road infrastructure? So 2C addresses maintenance issues, many of which were longstanding uh, going back decades. And so it is an important component. It doesn't do any of the new construction. It simply is going back and uh, continuing to maintain our roads. Colorado Springs is kind of unique, right? There's this huge swing in temperature. Uh, And so unlike most places where it either never freezes or it freezes and stays frozen, We have a freeze-thaw cycle on a daily basis uh, during much of the year, and that plays havoc on our roads. So we have to make sure we continue to invest in our roads. Absolutely, 2C has been a godsend in that area. And we have that whole list of every road that's going to be addressed. Uh, Are there others that need to be? Yes. I, I don't foresee that need going away. What hasn't been addressed, and here's where the key issue is, The state is no longer funding transportation the way it used to do. And many of our major thoroughfares, Powers Boulevard, I-25, are state highways. And there has been a lack of funding for them. So we have to advocate at the state level to make sure that transportation is being funded and that our roads are part of that process. Uh, Part of what the mayor has to be able to do is have those relationships at the state level to advocate for necessary projects in our community. And I do have those relationships, and I've shown how I've been able to help bring some of that funding to our community. Some of the most difficult challenges are getting from east to west in terms of transportation. Just briefly, how do you propose that we solve this issue? One of the things that was approved in Connect COS is a study that will look at some of those east-west mobility issues in that central part 
Uh, we did say that constitution is not part of that calculation. Uh, and so it's looking at how do we make things work in the best way possible. One of the things that some of the other east-west mobility studies have shown is that completion of Powers Boulevard actually helps the east-west traffic as well because people are then more likely to go in a different direction. And it's also finding ways that help the mobility to take place. So one of those, for example, that we did at Woodman and Union is pulling the left turn lane over earlier. And by doing that, you now, instead of having to wait for a four-cycle light, it's a three-cycle light. And even that change has made it so there's no longer that type of long line there used to be at that intersection that I used to sit through for two or three cycles. Um, and, and so it, it's looking for ways to balance the technology with the changes in structure, with the funding, and all of those are part of that process. I, I do get excited about these issues in part because I've I've been the vice chair of the State Transportation Advisory Committee. So it's something I've been involved in for a long time, and we've made progress. There's more we have to continue to do, and that east-west mobility is a key component of that, particularly as we expand to the east. And that's what the projections show, and so we've got to make sure we plan for that. Mm You know, we've been talking a lot about the need to improve how people get around the city, but we also want to touch on where people live and who has access to housing, right? You know, in 2018, Mayor Southers set a five-year plan to add an average of 1,000 affordable housing units each year. City officials say they've been successful in meeting that goal, but the five-year plan ends this year. Is that something that you will continue? Do you have different ideas of how, of what you think is needed? Absolutely. We need to continue to emphasize the need and at a minimum a thousand per year is we have to at least continue that process. But let's talk about, uh, I actually got started in government when Bob Isaac asked me to serve on the Colorado Springs Housing Authority Board in 1994. And so we did a number of things, including rebuilding Lowell School, and then it triggered an economic renewal in that whole southeast downtown area. Uh, we built, in conjunction with Peterson Air Force Base, uh, apartment buildings known as Creekside at Norwood, which is designed to address housing for enlisted personnel. On city council, we've done some other exciting things. So one of those, I talked about the water resource fee that we've imposed on developers. We also created a fund to address those water resource fees for affordable and attainable housing. So to incentivize affordable and attainable housing, we've got a a process where you can qualify for up to 100%, or it's a sliding scale based on the affordability of the particular project, how many are available. We've also eliminated the sales tax at the city level for building materials for affordable and attainable housing. And so by incentivizing affordable and attainable housing by not charging that sales tax, we've been able to actually increase and exceed that 1,000-unit goal over the last year. It's not limited to what we did at the city, though. So one of the things I want to do is advocate for a similar change at the state level, at the county level, because that provides an incentive that's market-driven, that doesn't have government building it, but allows a reason for a developer, a builder, to say, I want to do it this way. Absolutely, we need to work with the state on the new funding sources that have been uh, approved by the voters. And going forward, 
there's one glaring area that we have to address, and that is with respect to condominiums. We built a couple thousand homes, a couple thousand apartments. You know how many condos we built? Seven. Not seven buildings. One building, seven units. And for the entry-level home buyer, the difference in price is astronomical. And so because of some legislation at the state level, uh, perhaps because of also the way federal taxes are treated, uh, it is not economically viable to build condos in Colorado. We have to work with the legislature to change the construction defects law to make it so that it incentivizes folks to build that entry-level home ownership product because helping people to get into that first home is a key factor. It's ultimately how people build wealth. You, you put 10% down and you get 100% of the appreciation. It's a really great deal. Uh, over time. And so those are some things that we have to address as a community. Mm-hmm. So affordable or attainable housing doesn't really address necessarily a related issue, which is homelessness, people experiencing homelessness. What will your approach be to addressing that issue? So with respect to homelessness, uh, there's a number of ways that we have to address it. One of those is first making sure that there is a place where anyone who needs to go can go. The Springs Rescue Mission has been a great partner in that area. I was visiting with the Salvation Army who wants to build a permanent site for that short-term family housing, which is something we don't have. So if a family is experiencing homelessness, they can't stay together right now in the housing uh, units that are constructed for long-term usage. Uh, So that's part of what we have to do, and I want to work with the Salvation Army as mayor to advocate for the funding for that. That side then enables us to actually enforce ordinances and rules that say, no, you can't camp along our waterways. No, you can't camp in our public streets. I do favor continuing to expand the no-sit-lie area. It's one of the things that I we expanded it when I was on city council in a divided vote. I was supportive of that. I want to continue to expand that to address the needs of an expanding downtown area. Uh, but you have to have a place for someone to go in order for to tell them they can't be here. And so it's, it's, that's why it's working on both sides. I very much support the Mayor Southers initiative uh, that addresses trying to help particularly veterans who may have an issue with respect to whether they can provide sufficient security deposit. And so guaranteeing landlords that, yes, if, this, if you rent to this veteran, we will make sure you are held uh, whole. So those are all aspects of what I want to continue to do. We need to continue to expand our homeless outreach teams in the police department to make sure that we can enforce these. But again, we have to have a place for people to go, and we need to continue to work with our nonprofit community to make that happen. Wayne, thank you for your time today. Thanks so much for the opportunity to address you and your listeners today. I appreciate it. Wayne Williams wants to become the next mayor of Colorado Springs. He's a former city councilman and former secretary of state. He faced a small business owner, Yemi Mobilade, in the runoff election. We heard from Mobilade yesterday. Read both of their interviews at CPR.org and KRCC.org. Ballots are due by 7 p.m. on Tuesday, May 16th. Our thanks to KRCC's Abigail Beckman for her help on the production of these interviews. We should also note that Norwood Development Group is a financial supporter of KRCC. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. 
Bees mean honey and hives. Honeybees came to North America from Europe in the 17th century and are important to agriculture as pollinators, especially for non-native crops. But when it comes to native flowering plants, the job is best done by native bees. And Colorado is home to nearly a thousand species. Most are solitary. Each female builds her own nest in a tunnel and works alone to gather pollen and nectar for her young. She lives just four to six weeks during warm weather, then dies. But the larvae she leaves behind will go through the winter encased in cocoons and emerge when it warms up, ready to repeat the cycle. With native bees losing more and more habitat to human development, I-76 was designated as a pollinator highway a few years ago. Gardeners can help too, as native bees live underground, leave some areas without mulch to help them and other beneficial insects. A Colorado postcard from CPR. With the support of National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Poetry and history. They're not necessarily two topics that you often see presented together, but Colorado State Historian has melded them in hopes of creating a unique learning experience about the backstory behind our dear state. Jared Orsi is a professor of history at Colorado State University who began his one-year position as the state historian and leader of History Colorado's State Historians Council last August. One of his goals is to make history more inclusive and accessible, and he says a series of three free poetry writing workshops that he will host with a colleague at history museums across the state in June helps to do just that. And it's not the first time he's done this. Attendees listen to a presentation about a topic in Colorado history, then they're coached through writing a poem about what they've learned. Here's a piece written by a participant who attended a previous history and poetry workshop at the Fort Collins Museum of Discovery in January. It had an environmental theme. I'm Leslie Strzok. I'm from Fort Collins, Colorado, and here is the poem I wrote. It's called A Climate Game. It's a game. It's fun. She matches the animals one by one. Bornean orangutan, Tasmanian devil, American frog. She gasps at the kawaii oh-oh. Uh-oh. Mom, it's extinct. Another Hawaiian bird bites the dust. As we try to sustain a lifestyle that's unsustainable, we craft a cup you use forever in a blue world growing ever redder. We leave the exhibit inspired and tired. That was Leslie Strzok of Fort Collins sharing the poem that she wrote while attending a history and poetry workshop in January, which again had an environmental theme. Historian Orsi and his colleague, poet Jody Hollander, join us now. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good to be with you, Chandra. Jared, tell us about how that first round of poetry workshops went. We had everybody read their poems at the end of the workshop. And naturally, all of us said, oh, you know, my poem's not very good. But in fact, they were really good. They were moving and heartfelt. <laughs> and they combined history and environment and art in truly amazing ways. Well, Jared, I'm curious, what inspired the combination of poetry and history together? Jody and I have been friends for a while, but the pandemic really interrupted our professional connections. And last spring, she was coming off a really successful tour of poetry in the parks where she led workshops like this 
in Arizona National Parks. And at the same time, I was preparing to become Colorado's state historian. And I was looking ab about for projects that hadn't been done before at History Colorado and could possibly um, bring in some new visitors and take a new slant on history. So we got together and we started talking about common interests and this idea of combining poetry and history in the museums of History Colorado and other municipal museums around the state is what we came up with. You've been very vocal about wanting to make Colorado history more accessible, but also embracing diversity. Can you tell us how these workshops kind of play into that? Yeah, so the content of each workshop amplifies some aspect of Colorado history that gives us a broader perspective on who Coloradoans have been and thus who we are today. So in Fort Garland, we're going to look at indigenous slavery and amplify the role of Native peoples in shaping the history and current culture of the San Luis Valley. When we get to Trinidad and the Coal Field War and the Ludlow Massacre of 1914, one of the remarkable things about that labor movement was the ways in which miners from the United States and Mexico, Italy, Wales, Scandinavia, and other places overcame ethnic differences. They used their ethnic diversity as a tool to empower them to cooperate in labor organizing even more, more successfully. And then finally, when we get to Fort Collins Museum of Discovery, we're going to examine deep time in northern Colorado. People have been inhabiting northern Colorado along the Front Range for 13,000 years. And just like people today appreciate the possibilities for communication and connection and trade and travel along the I-25 corridor, people came to this region for the exact same reasons a long time ago. And so it raises questions about what it means to be a Coloradan today. If you think of yourself as the latest in a parade of people who have called this spot on the earth home for longer than we can imagine. Jody, what excites you about this next round of workshops? Oh, I'm really looking forward to this. This is a really different way to experience a museum exhibit. The participants really are able to take an active part in their understanding of history. And by creating a poem, they're imbuing that experience with personal meaning. And I think that will allow for lasting power of that experience through a poem. And I think that can be really powerful. The workshops, we hope, bring some people into museums who perhaps have interest in poetry, but hadn't thought about the historical connection. The opposite also might be true, that people who uh, frequent the museums but hadn't tried their hand at poetry much might try out these workshops. So we're really bringing together two vibrant communities in Colorado, the arts and history, and trying to create a venue that is accessible to people from both communities and to give them an opportunity to encounter one another and to learn the wisdom of the other community, even as they share their own wisdoms. Jody, as a poet and author yourself who recently released a book, what do you feel is the benefit of this combination of workshops that combine history and poetry? I think poetry can really be a universal language. Poetry is for everyone, and it can reach people across different time periods, 
different cultures, different ways of life. And I think having people create poems and learn about poetry is really a way to bring people together and to deepen their understanding of history. Jared Orsi is the state historian. Jody Hollander is a poet. They're working together on a series of free workshops that cover certain topics in Colorado history, then helps attendees write a poem about it. They'll walk us through the process after a quick break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you're looking for information on how to support Colorado Public Radio through a gift, donation, or sponsorship, or if you need to update or change your membership details, you can find an answer on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Using poetry to create a better understanding of Colorado's history. That's the idea behind an outreach program led by state historian Jared Orsi. He's teamed up with poet Jody Hollander to lead a series of free workshops at museums across the state. Let's get back to the conversation, but first, another poem written at the workshop they hosted at a museum in Fort Collins in January. Global population projected to exceed 8 billion in 2022. Earth matters. Ten years after the proclamation, years after the assassination, an earth rise stuns. Men on the moon, drunk on success. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Blue planet home, a marble like marble in space. We play games with it. We forget or refuse to believe its fragility. We forget or ignore actions that have consequences. It's coming home, leaving a calling card after it knocks at the door. Floods have its back. Umbrellas won't help. Fires rage in primal forests equal displacement. Exhausts are exhausting equals maiming, killing. Alphabets of chemicals feed us. Wars destroy more than we can imagine. Cradle this. Ah, that blue sphere we call home. How it spins to shake us awake. How long will she render forgiveness? That was Sandra McGarry of Fort Collins sharing the poem that she wrote while attending a history and poetry workshop in January at the Fort Collins Museum of Discovery. Jared, so walk us through it. You show up and kind of what's the order of the day? We begin with a round of introductions so that people can talk about what brought them to the workshop and what they hope to get out of it. We had a really diverse group of people, some people who had barely ever written a poem before in their lives and others who were quite accomplished poets. And after that, I gave a frame, a historical frame for how to think about environment and history together. The exhibit was called Earth Matters, and it was about the environmental challenges facing humanity on our planet today. And then I'd turn it over to Jody. And Jody, you want to describe what you do? Sure. So I like to start off by making sure that everyone's on the same page 
in terms of understanding of basic poetic techniques. Mm -hmm. So usually I'll go over some terms such as, you know, end stopped lines versus end jammed lines. We'll talk about how to build sound in poetry and go over terms like assonance, consonance, alliteration, um, repetition. We'll talk about metaphor, imagery, um, and really the tools that we can use to make our poems effective and make them ear-pleasing and enjoyable to readers. We also look at celebrated examples of poems and uh, look at how these techniques are effectively used. And then I give the participants writing prompts. The idea behind these prompts is really just to allow yourself to free write without any filtering, any judgment, um, just sort of getting everything out onto the page and making a personal connection with the exhibit through this free writing. After the free writing, the participants come back to the room and they have 10 minutes to draft out a poem. We're just sort of trying to get the bare bones of a poem down on paper. Mm. And then there's the opportunity to share those poems with the group. It's voluntary, of course, but we always get really good participation here. And as Jared said earlier, people always make excuses for their poems and say, oh, I didn't write anything very good. But the poems that come out of these workshops are always exceptional. And, and it's hard to believe that something so distilled and so powerful could have been written in such a short amount of time. After the workshops, there's the option of having the participants send their poems in to be considered to be paired with the exhibit or potentially hmm. um, posted on social media, which we really like as well. So it's a wonderful process. When are the next round of workshops taking place? So they're going to take place on three consecutive days over a weekend in mid-June. We will be first at the Fort Garland Museum in the San Luis Valley on June 16th. On the morning of the 17th, we will be down at the Trinidad Museum. And then on the afternoon of June 18th, we'll be back up in Fort Collins at the Fort Collins Museum. Jared, as I mentioned, you are a professor of history at CSU, and you are now in the midst of your one-year position as a state historian. What have been some of the highlights of the past six months? Well, certainly working with Jody and conducting these workshops has been one of the highlights. It was one of the first ideas that came onto my agenda for this year, and I can't be more delighted with the successes that they have had and looking forward to rounding out the year's workshops with the upcoming ones in June. I've also had some really wonderful opportunities to meet amazing people that I might not have had the opportunity to encounter if I hadn't been state historian. So I've been up in the mountains at the cabin of Judge Gary Jackson, joining uh, his family and, and you and your family as well, um, <laughs> to learn about the history of Lincoln Hills, the Black resort community from the early and mid-decades of the 20th century. I've also been out far out on the plains in northeastern Weld County, getting to conduct oral histories with senior ranchers and farmers and working with the nonprofit organization Friends of Raymer to help them record their history. And I've, in both cases, out on the plains and up in the mountains, I've just had a wonderful time meeting amazing people who are preserving 
history. Even though they're not professional historians, they are some of the best historians I've ever met, and I've been pleased to get to be a part of their work. Well, you beat me to it. I was going to mention that we have worked together quite a bit. I interviewed you at our studio in downtown Denver soon after your appointment as state historian. Then a few weeks later, as you mentioned, we met up again to record a special episode of Colorado Matters at Lincoln Hills. And you've been a member of the State Historians Council since its inception in 2018. And the five-person council rotates the leadership role every year on Colorado's birthday, which is August 1st with the goal of achieving, quote, greater reach and representation for the state to amplify different perspectives and to reinforce the collaborative foundation of history and storytelling. Pretty interesting. Yeah, it's really been my pleasure to be a part of that council. I've really been able to watch and learn from the experiences of my very talented predecessors. And now it's my turn, and I'm looking forward to handing it off to Clara Oberon Garcia at the end of this term. Wow, seems like not enough time. It's so much to do. Well, it sounds like you will be quite busy for the remainder of your tenure. Jarrett, Jody, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chandra. Thanks so much for having us. Pleasure to talk with you, as always, Chandra. That was Jared Orsi, a professor of history at Colorado State University, who has served as Colorado State Historian and leader of History Colorado's State Historians Council since last August. We were also joined by his colleague and poet, Jody Hollander. Together, they will host a series of three poetry writing workshops across the state in June related to various topics on Colorado history. The workshops are free and open to the public, but registration is required. We'll put a link up for the workshops at CPR.org in the Colorado Matters podcast. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.